Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast. I'm your host, Des Latham. For those who followed the story from our start in October, you know they'd be tracking the weeks of the war itself, and now it's the first week of June 1900. This moment is what Lord Roberts has been waiting for, the triumphant march into the Transvaal capital, Pretoria, with 16,000 men, thus putting an end to the uppity Boers. But there's more bad news mixed with the good for the British. Christian de Vett, Coeur de la Rey, and Louis Boerter, along with other Boer leaders, are going to make the English lives a misery over the next 24 months. So Roberts and his men may as well enjoy the Indian summer while they can. In the traditional mode of warfare in Europe, the army arrives at the capital, destroys the opposing army, the generals hand over their swords, the monarchy or political leadership kowtows, and the war is over. Reparations and various modes of punishment follow. As Napoleon found out when he ransacked and burnt Moscow, it's not that simple. And in Africa, things are far more complex. Often there's no capital, there's no proper army, there's just a vague hint of force, then it's gone. It's like a myth and a legend, and momentarily it appears to cut your throat or knock your commander from his horse at a distance of two kilometres. For proper soldiers brought up on dignified marches and saluting parade ground discipline, stratified leadership, court martials and empire states, the war in Africa is still infuriating and mysterious. Why don't these Boers stand and fight, was the constant note on hundreds of letters sent back by the new middle-class soldiers to their loved ones in England in 1899 and 1900. Some of the same soldiers had experienced the Indian campaigns or those of North Africa, but these were generally against soldiers armed with weapons a generation older. Here the Boers had the latest weapons and were determined to protect their own lives. There's no Boer military tradition built on regiments. It's all built on blood relatives, clan lineages and charismatic leaders who are successful in the use of force. The British leadership had still not fathomed this reality. Their presumption was because the Boers were white, they would act like Europeans. And the irony is the Boers failed to realize this too, that they were Africans first, and their techniques of warfare had been sharpened for centuries fighting in this landscape while they argued with the English over who was using black troops. So in this episode, we'll set up the next two years of warfare with two very different styles. One involves the British Empire and its pageantry. The other involves mobile Boer commandos who lived minute by minute on their wits, leading flexible units which could form and dissolve in days. The triumphal entry into Pretoria by Roberts and his army took place at 2 o'clock on June the 5th, 1900, by arrangement with the Boers. Strangely, for a victorious army, Roberts had accepted a visit from General Louis Boerter's emissary shortly before he marched in, who proposed peace talks, which was clearly an attempt at saving more time. The fact that Roberts even entertained some form of parley as the clearly dominant force is interesting itself. Again, the pavements of Pretoria were full of black Pretoria residents who cheered the British army into the capital, only to be forced off by soldiers. We heard last week how black Johannesburg residents were booted off the streets and in Pretoria it was no different. Black South Africans were told in no uncertain terms where they belonged and that was outside the CBD, in the townships, on the outskirts. Once more up went the Union Jack and down came the Fier Clear. All saluted and the troops sang a solemn version of God Save the Queen. 
One of the Morning Post newspaper war correspondents called Provost Battersby wrote an illuminating piece for his publication, which included these words. Here, in the rock-bound rolls of its mountains, where forts were bound like defiant crowns of red gold about the brows of its hills, here, where for years it had prepared to meet us, we should see the last great fight of a free people brought to bay. But it wasn't that way. It was an anticlimax, as the Boers refused to fight, considering the force arraigned against them was clearly more powerful. Battersby continues that there are no signs of... No ruin of streets, no cringing people, no debris of an army, none of the very needful adjuncts of success. Roberts continued to talk about a civilised war, when, of course, there is no such thing. After all, there is nothing civilised in warfare, and can never be. It is a barbarian's game. That very morning, a Boer war train full of troops had pulled out of Pretoria Station, and the British did nothing. Winston Churchill, the other Morning Post war correspondent, reported on how the train was crammed with Boers whose rifles bristled from every window, and to his relief, not a shot was fired. Churchill had also made his way to the Pretoria Girls' School buildings, where he had been held prisoner only a few months before and managed to escape in the dead of night. There he held his hat aloft and cheered, while inside the barbed wire cage there came an answering cheer. Churchill and his cousin, the Duke of Marlborough, entered the prisoner of war camp and the commander was arrested. All his men threw down their firearms. The prisoners then rushed out while someone produced a Union Jack, which actually was a clear Transvaal Republic flag that had been cut up and the colours rearranged. And the flag was raised above the building. This pretty much summed up in a symbolic way how the British were to rule South Africa until its union in 1910. Roberts and his officers sat back in the Transvaal capital on the 7th of June, awaiting Louis Boerter's surrender. However, it was three days later on the 10th of June that the British commander realised there would be no general laying down of arms, and he hurriedly ordered his men to be ready to return to battle. By then, most of the arms and ammunition had been squirrelled away by the Boers. Furthermore, Roberts had already sent a good portion of his army back down the railway line towards Cape Town and only had 16,000 men of his original 60,000 strong army with him at the capital. Ominously, Louis Boerter had issued a call to the Boers and had managed to form an army 5,000 strong, which was gathering in the east. And we've already seen that in this war, 5,000 Boers would easily outfight 16,000 British, so Roberts was in a more fragile position than he thought. I'll deal with the upcoming Battle of Donkerhook next week. In the meantime, the terrifyingly successful commander under Christian de Wet was about to wreak havoc in the Free State, well behind the lines. It was at the Battle of Roedeval. I'm using Christian de Wet's book called Three Years' War to describe what happened, most historians of this conflict rely heavily on his book for descriptions of the incidents as the Boer propaganda machine did not include many embedded reporters, unlike the English. The Boer reporters were usually actually French or German and even American or Russian, but hardly any were Boers themselves. On the 2nd of June, de Wet and his commander were based around 20 kilometres from Heilbronn in the Free State Republic, near a small range of hills he called the Presidentskopi, joined by Commandants Steenkamp and Ulfir. And Heilbronn is around 200 kilometres south of Pretoria. As the British were concerned, there were only a handful of Boers left in the field, and these were doomed anyway. 
Fred General de Bet was not of the same opinion. He was adept at keeping his men out of sight of the British garrison at Halebone. By June the 4th, a day before Pretoria fell, de Wet's spies informed him of a large convoy of British supplies being brought up to Heilbronn, and he thought it an excellent target. Before sunrise on June the 5th, the very day Roberts took control of Pretoria, de Wet's burghers surrounded the convoy as it camped in open ground close to the Ranosta or Rhino River. De Wet writes, No sooner had the sun appeared than I dispatched a burgher with a white flag to the English officer in command. I ordered my messenger to inform the officer that he was surrounded, that escape was out of the question, and that if he wished to avoid unnecessary bloodshed, his only course was to surrender. After some to and fro, the British officer raised the white flag. The vet's hall was considerable. Fifty-six heavily laden wagons fell into his hands. All of this took place out of sight of the nearest railway station, Roedeval, as well as Heilbronn, and because no shots were fired or artillery was used, the dead quiet of the felt was unbroken. De Wet's main project, as he called it, was the capture of the far more valuable booty at the Roedeval station itself. On the evening of the 6th of June, the commandos swung into their saddles and began the assault of Roedeval. A few kilometres away from the siding, he divided his troops into three parties, the first comprised 300 men with one Krupp artillery piece and was dispatched under Commandant Steenkamp to the Friedefort railway station with orders it be attacked on the morning of the 7th at dawn. A second party of Boers under command of General Frunemann, joined by Commandants Nell and Deploy, were dispatched along with two Krupps and one quick-firing pom-pom to attack an English camp north of the railway station, also along the Renosta River. The third party he commanded, and included only 80 burghers and one Krupp gun, and with this comparatively small force, he headed off to Rodeval station itself. He had been told by his spies that there were only 100 Englishmen at the station, but they were well dug in and protected by earthworks and the station buildings. For once, de Wet's informants were wrong. There were more than 200 troops dug in there. Early on the 7th of June, and two hours before dawn, he arrived at a spot close to Rudolfal station. His men silently unhitched their Krips gun, when sporadic firing broke out to the north. De Wet thought it must be General Frunemann starting his attack a little early, and hurriedly moved his men into position to spring forward. Then he dispatched four of the bravest to crawl as close as possible to the British line, and they returned just as the eastern sky began to grow crimson with the rising sun, and they reported all was quiet. De Wet writes, the day now began to dawn, and as soon as it was light, I sent a message to the enemy, demanding their surrender. The answer came back at once. On the back of my note, these words had been written. We refuse to surrender. I instantly opened a hot fire on them, bringing the Krip as well as the Moses into action. But the reply from the British was no less severe. De Wet had actually miscalculated the British resolve, mainly due to poor intelligence. His men were in a dry pan or depression, and the Krupp gunners withdrew to around a kilometre away, as this far larger force than he'd realised let loose in their general direction. The repositioned Krupps then fired on the Rudeval station. The grouping of contingents from India, post office workers and a railway pioneer corps company struggled heroically. However, the English commander eventually surrendered after an hour of fighting. Little did he know just how precarious the position of the Boers had been initially. So the Boers rode into the British camp and were stunned. 
De Wet's comments sum up what they discovered. On our arrival at the station, we were all filled with wonder at the splendid entrenchments the English had constructed from bales of cotton, blankets, and post bags. These entrenchments had been so effectual that the enemy's loss was only 27 killed and wounded, a remarkably small number when it is remembered that we took 200 of them prisoner. The real figure was 148 British casualties, but De Wet was always cautious when it came to numbers. The Boers had stumbled on a virtual treasure trove. Apart from tons of uniforms and cloth, there were hundreds of cases of ammunition, naval gun shells, food and many other provisions. Later, British media reported that De Wet had plundered more than half a million pounds worth of material in the swoop, and in those days, that was a real fortune. De Wet, however, was frustrated. I was very sorry that I could not carry away with me the blankets and boots, which we found in large quantities, but there was no time for this. The English held the railway and could at any moment bring up reinforcements from Bloemfontein, Kronstadt or Pretoria. I could not take the booty. I was obliged to consign most to the flames. Before doing so, he allowed the Boers time to open the post bags where family in England had stowed goods for their loved ones fighting in South Africa. Soon the Boers were smoking cigars and eating treats. At that point, the English commander asked if they too may be allowed to tuck in. There, in the midst of Africa, English and Boer together ransacked the post bags while De Wet looked on, shaking his head. It was an amusing sight to see the soldiers thus robbing their own mail. However, the Boers were in an unprotected position, and De Wet was nervous that any lengthy delay was fraught. Once again, the lackadaisical approach to Boer discipline was to hobble their commander. De Wet's men initially refused to help him load the heavy ammunition onto their horses. There were no wagons available at that point, but his burghers were too busy, in his words, engaged in looting. Eventually, and with much cajoling, the Boers carried away 600 cases of ammunition and buried them for future use. De Wet writes, When the sun set, the burghers were again on the march. But what a curious spectacle they presented. Each man had loaded his horse so heavily with goods that there was no room for himself in the saddle. He had therefore to walk and lead his horse. The burghers had come from a shop where no money was demanded and none paid. Even more strange, the Tommies, as the vet called the English soldiers, were also heavily laden as they walked away from Rudeval and carted off as much as possible. So heavily laden that they had to be prodded in order to move. Eventually, most of the English prisoners threw away their ill-gotten gains, thus leaving a trail of parcels like the breadcrumbs of Hansel and Gretel scattered over the felt. Then they torched the plum puddings, bully beef blankets, cordat and five-inch cowgun shells left behind at Rudeval station. De Wet describes it thus. The night was very dark, and this rendered the sight that met our eyes still more imposing. It was the most beautiful display of fireworks that I have ever seen. The other attacks he'd ordered had all ended well. General Frunemann caught the Derbyshires near the Renostarefir bridge. The British unit had literally been dumped near the railway line and were a raw unit in South Africa. More than 170 were killed or wounded, more than 500 taken prisoner. Commandant Steenkamp had also met with success, capturing the English camp at Friedefort Vach station and taken 30 prisoners without firing a shot. De Wet wrote of this in his usual candid style. 
Thus, we made 800 of the enemy our prisoners and destroyed huge amounts of their ammunition, and this with scarcely any loss on our side. He wasn't boasting. At Rudeval, he had lost two men, while General Frunemann had lost one with two slightly wounded. This incident alone cemented General Christian de Wett in the annals of brilliant African tacticians. Still, there was time for him to take one more dig at Roberts. Undoubtedly, Lord Roberts would be very angry with me. But I consoled myself with the thought that his anger would blow over, said a magnanimous de Wett. Then he followed this up with some military advice. I felt sure that after calm considerations he would acknowledge that I had been altogether within my rights, and that he had been rather unwise in heaping together at one place so large a quantity of insufficiently protected stores. Typically and fantastically self-serving, but de Wett was correct. While this was going ahead as planned, another event occurred which upset de Wett enormously. Feldkornet Hans Smith from Ruvel in the Free State gave up the cause in a most humiliating way. Instead of escorting his prisoners to the eastern Transvaal, Smith discussed surrender with the prisoners' leader, Captain Wyndham Knight. Terms were agreed, and de Wett says, The Feldkornet obtained from him a free pass to Kroonstadt through English lines, and also a written request to the British authorities there to allow the him and twenty burghers to proceed without hindrance to Ruvel. Alas, that any free state officer should be capable of such conduct. He also wrote that it was far easier to fight against the great British army than against this treachery among his own people. Back in Pretoria, Lord Roberts dwelled on the previous few months, and while he did so, in a house not too far away, Denise Reitz was preparing for his next move. When Johannesburg had fallen, the Reitz brothers had rushed to Pretoria. We heard last week how they bypassed the English units in order to search for their family. When they arrived at their home in the Sunnyside suburb, they found it locked down. Their father had left with Kruger to the eastern Transvaal, so they settled back for their first time in months, making a roaring fire in their own kitchen and cooking a dinner with supplies from the pantry. Reitz says, And then we slept in comfortable beds, a change after the freezing nights we have endured of late. His stepmother and his younger siblings had already been sent to Delagoa Bay, or the modern-day Maputo in Mozambique. From there, they caught a ship up the east coast of Africa via the Suez Canal and to Holland. But first, their black worker and friend, Charlie, needed to go home, although he preferred to remain with the brothers. After some argument where Charlie pleaded to be allowed to continue to fight, they eventually took their leave of the black man who had fought and slept alongside the Reitz brothers through their campaign thus far. Charlie was deeply upset and felt they had been cast aside without so much as a by-your-leave. The manner of their parting was not satisfactory, and continued to haunt Denise Reitz as the war progressed. Charlie was given the furniture, and whatever else he could salvage from the Reitz household, then he was gone. So we'll call a halt right now, and take stock. Next week we shift our gaze back to Natal, where General Redvers Buller has shown great initiative in moving his army northwards through the Biggersburg Mountains and conducting his offence in a far more effective manner than earlier in the war. So until then, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham, and we have a website called abwarpodcast.com. So take a look at that if you can. Thanks. And for all the messages of support and advice I'm getting, thank you so much. It's coming from around the world. 
which is really a surprise considering this little story from the South of Africa. Well, until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar jou transval, daar waar mijn zaren.